What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I love doing this podcast, and I'm grateful to have the support of two of the most popular and respected companies in the Bitcoin space. If you already know all about how River and CoinKite can help you buy and secure your Bitcoin, skip ahead 75 seconds. If not, keep listening. CoinKite makes some of the most badass Bitcoin hardware there is. Their flagship product is the Cold Card Hardware Wallet, a feature-rich tool for taking self-custody of your Bitcoin, which has been a favorite of hardcore Bitcoiners for many years. CoinKite is also the maker of the wildly popular Block Clock series, which are standalone or wall-mounted devices which track and display things like the current Bitcoin block height, the SATs per fiat exchange rate, the Bitcoin price, and many other data points of interest to a Bitcoin enthusiast. It might not sound that exciting, but it's almost bizarrely satisfying to be able to glance over at it and watch as new blocks are added to the chain. The recently released Block Clock Micro, a smaller and more affordable option, is now available at their store. Check it out, along with a ton of other stuff for securely using and having some fun with your Bitcoin at CoinKite.com. River allows you to securely buy Bitcoin, zero fee dollar cost average, and purchase hosted mining rigs. Also, their Lightning service enables developers and companies to integrate Lightning payments into their applications without having to run any Lightning infrastructure themselves. I recommend River because of their excellent customer service, stellar team, and for their principled and dedicated approach to building a next-generation financial services business on Bitcoin. To get started, visit river.com today. Let's do it. We good? There we are. I we're think good. we're good. Um, yeah, so, I mean, just to put a pin in, in what we were just talking about, uh, who knows how things are going to pan out and where the best place to be is. I think a lot of us right now are kind of playing that arbitrage game if we can, you know, if we have that degree of adaptability or flexibility. And it seems like that's the way to go. Because, uh, I mean, the, the States is, seems like one of the best places to be. And I know a lot of people, uh, well, may, maybe a lot of non-Bitcoin or normie people would, would find that absurd because a lot of people are, I don't know, afraid of it or think it's going down the tubes or something. But mm-hmm. I mean, that's the state of the world, right? I mean, how many places are at least preserving your right to speech and your right to self-defense and, and these sorts of things. There's not many places. I mean, that's another thing we, you, you brought up C bill C 11, but in, in Canada, you know, they just did another big gun grab. And I think, Oh really? Yeah. At the last hour they made some, cause, cause they Trudeau had already done. I mean, it's all so crazy, but like in response to a, a shooting, I think in the East coast, like a year or two ago, Mm. by a guy who impersonated like acted like he was a police officer put the 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 stickers on the car the whole nine yards but got illegal guns from the u.s right so they weren't registered they weren't bought in canada have nothing to do with canada's gun laws whatsoever right but in the name you know that that was used to do a big uh, gun grab and i think um like most non-hunting firearms were made illegal handguns all that kind of stuff there was a big buyback thing um and this this one so a year or two later was basically you know coming after a, a, a huge swath more like a lot of hunting uh style rifles mm. and i think at the last hour they made a few concessions and so they um they allowed people to keep uh, you know a few different uh variations or, wh- or whatever it was but it's clear that uh you know they want to take guns away from canadians and you know, there are a lot of hunters in Canada, but there's a lot more normies. And, you know, the normie position in Canada is why the hell would you want a gun? Right. I mean, there's right. absolutely no appreciation for 
the role of the citizenry to be able to defend themselves, both defend like their own family against individual attackers and stuff like that, because the police aren't usually Johnny on the spot, right? They, they can mm -hmm. follow up later and, and maybe try to get some justice. Um, and there's even less appreciation for the notion that it's a check and balance on, you know, the power of government. I mean, that's just not part of the Canadian consciousness whatsoever. And so most that's people right. are very, very, um, supportive of getting guns off the streets sort of thing. Yeah, it's sad to see. And I mean, you know, the States does have a lot of problems, but I think that there's at least mimetically kind of a groundswell of an appreciation of, of you know, sort of the mythology of freedom. Um, and even if, you know, in many cases, the Republicans and the Democrats both, you know, frequently disappoint um, many people, including myself, but um, at least kind of within the Republican wing, you see uh, at least aping the freedom narrative. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I like, I like seeing that more than I don't. So, um, totally. we still have a bit of that here. You know, the access to natural resources is pretty good. Um, and I think that's going to be something that at least will give me peace of mind over the, the coming years is I'd really like to, you know, work out in, in, uh, good detail where my food's coming from, you know, where mm -hmm. my energy's coming from. Um, I've been playing with solar a little bit, you know, I have sitting next to me a little, um, the makings of an off-grid uh, solar inverter battery setup. And I saw your, the photos that you tweeted out a couple of days ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been fun to play with. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's a substitute for good baseload energy. Like, you know um, you might get from a, a nuclear solution, but I think they're good for different things. And if you want to actually do decentralized energy um, kind of on an individual household level, you know, solar is a pretty, pretty appealing way to do it, especially because, you know, they're subsidizing the hell out of it. Yeah, um, totally. At least here. And, you know, the U S has, you know, that um, notion of like the rugged individualist, you know, sort of thing in its history and consciousness. And I think that also contributes to it all. I mean, I, I hate to shit too much on Canada because um, I love the land and, and some the people where I'm from. Love but, Canada. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's good things about it, but in terms of like the national consciousness, freedom just isn't, there's so much, uh, there's just a taken for granted of what, what prevails up there. And yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. I say that somewhat uh, cautiously because what prevails up there now is not a great picture, but you know what I mean? Like what, what historically has been available there in terms of freedom and, and prosperity uh, there seems to be very little appreciation for how that is generated and man maintained. You know, people just mm -hmm. assume, Oh, we're, we're Canadians. Like this is what we do. We're, we're peaceful and we're prosperous and we're free. Uh, and people don't realize that you get those things as a result of upholding certain values and principles and not wavering on them. And to the That's extent right. that you waver on them, you lose those things. And there's just, um, yeah, I think a lot of people up there just think the status quo self generates like the good part of the status quo, let's say like the things that we would probably agree on, uh, just happen by uh, like an accident of fate and they don't really you know, it's not something you have to be consciously uh, aware of or vigilant about, which, you know, is usually the attitude that prevails before things kind of go to shit. So that's right. And, you know, maybe that explains the efficacy of that fourth turning framework. If you have prosperity and a sort of libertine 
organization to society, if you're born into that, right. And that was there for your parents' generation. You just, you assume that that's the natural state and it's yeah. like anything, but right. So, um, I do, and you think can be forgiven people, for that. I mean, cause like, why right. wouldn't you think it's a natural state, but, right. and I think the answer to that is it's critical that you're educated on how things come to be as they are. Because, you know, then you have a, a frame of reference for like where things could go. And not only does that not really prevail in Canada, but people are being fed the exact opposite of that. You know, they're being fed things that contribute to the degradation, you know, ideas and things like that, that are divergent from, in my opinion, what would be necessary to soberly assess the circumstance, understand how things came to be as they are and how they could be improved, and then direct your attention and energies in that in that way. I mean, it's, it's the complete opposite. You know, people are more feeding into the very things that exacerbate that taking for granted sort of attitude. And, you mm -hmm. know, of course we're seeing the results for it of it today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, Canada, much like Australia, maybe you could lump Japan in here. It's almost like there there's, there's peacetime mode of organization where you have high cohesion and, you know, everybody's just trying to be a good neighbor, be, you know, be considerate, um, do the, do the, the right thing, um, from kind of a top-down perspective. And that in, in most cases that creates like a very stable, nice environment where people are just go along, get along. There's high cohesion in society, but I think, and people subconsciously realize this in America, I think, um, there is another mode which is kind of the american volatility mode where it's like yeah there are there are guns and there are shootings and you know there there is um maybe an inbuilt distrust of government but that serves to actually almost hedge you against these kind of civilizational risks where mm. you might have a, a defect it's like growing uh you know uh, the world's wheat crop from a single uh germ you know it's like you know you need you need some dissonance. You need some decentralization of power to actually offset these, uh, you know, civilizational tides that can kind of come along and just and wipe you out. So we may or may not be in one of those. Who knows? It kind of seems like it, right? I mean, a lot has been, a lot of people have talked about the, the various converging cycles right now, but, you know, it, I agree with that assessment and in, in Canada, um, I don't know. There's, there's, there's such a, uh, well, an issue like the gun issue, right? I mean, the, 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 the narrowness of thinking is always what kind of drives me crazy. It's like, and you could, the same, the same could be true for the States. I mean, it's probably a better example because there are all, there are all these horrible, you know, shootings and tragedies and stuff like that. And the reflexive, the, the overly simplistic, narrow reflexive response is, Oh, what did the damage, the guns, get rid of the guns, the problem will, will be resolved. Right. Um, and it's, you know, it's just such an insane way to look at these things. And, um, and you're, you're not balancing the, the benefits with the, the, the risks or the downsides. And I mean, it's the nature of the discourse generally in society today. But, you know, kudos to you guys for, for holding out this far, because I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I think, you know, I've heard maybe Switzerland and Panama have like kind of liberal gun laws, but I don't think they're even close to the U.S. And, you know, whether that's from a, a genuine recognition of uh, the role of, you know, an armed citizenry in, in uh, rep, you know, ha providing that check on the, bal the balance of power of the government, or if it's like just 
America and you just instinctively long, you know, love guns for a lot of people or, or enjoy, you know, using firearms or whatever, probably a little bit of both, but, um, it's kind of the, the last bastion of, uh, well, the last country that's kind of recognizing the, the importance of that. That's right. And like I said, I think there's kind of a subconscious realization of that, even maybe among people who don't even own, own firearms, you know, maybe there's a kind of like, well, we're, we're really the last holdout, you know, and maybe you want to preserve that just in case. Totally. Well, I think it seems like during all like the, the height of the COVID craziness, I mean, it, it seemed like uh, a lot of people like that were formerly anti-gun had become pro-gun. Oh, I yeah. think part of that was just like, oh, you know, this can happen. And maybe you even agree with everything that went down or these people probably disagreed with it to some degree. But just the, the the blatant power and of the government to execute on these policies was just in everyone's faces. And I think that just yeah. added to, you know, made people question like, oh, well, what if this is, you know, that power is directed in another way in the future, you know, and should I not mm -hmm. want to have some means of, of opposing it? And I think, you know, you had, I think the guns and ammo and stuff were hard to find for a while. And, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, so-called liberals or lefties ended up becoming center or center right politically or philosophically speaking so you know maybe uh maybe this american revivalist sort of uh narrative has some has some legs you know and if we can mix in a little bitcoin there and shrink the government then you know maybe there's a second a second inning for america and it's not time for china to take over everything i sure hope so yeah i sure hope so i mean the the internal discord definitely does get get tough um, for someone living here, but I think you are seeing kind of a, maybe not unlikely coalition, but, you know, we know some ranchers out here in Virginia and, um, uh, they're, they're really big on Bitcoin, um, for all the same philosophical and kind of design reasons that, you know, that we are fundamentally. And so I think you're seeing these coalitions start to emerge across, you know, people who are like, for lack of a more concise uh, for lack of a, a more descriptive way of putting it, who are, who are acquainted with ground physical reality. You know, you have people who are farmers, uh, ranchers, you have people who are generating energy who kind of get, okay, like none of this just shows up. And I think that fosters this appreciation that you don't get something for nothing. Um, and what we've been doing with the monetary policy for the last 30 plus years here has basically been something for nothing um, or an attempt to, to pursue that. So I do think you're, you're seeing Bitcoin start to provide kind of a framework for uh, people from a lot of different walks of life to come together and say, you know, we, we object to the, the way that this system has been going and, and um, we want to create something different. Yeah. For people like that, I assume, but again, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, because a lot of the uh, perception of Bitcoin up till now has been, you know, pump your bags, right? Make, you know, make a bunch of money. And it seems to me that, and I'm I'm too deep in this to, to really have an objective view, but it seems to me that the perception is more becoming that element of kind of independence or sovereignty or an ability to opt out. You know, it's like the craziness has just been on such full display the last two years all the different ways, whether it be energy, food, money, that I can 
extricate myself from the madness, I want to do that. And if you're telling me that Bitcoin is the best way to do that for my finances, you know, I'm interested. And then you could, you know, you do your research and you determine for yourself if that's a valid way to do so. But it seems like, and that's, I, in my opinion, that's obviously a much more healthy narrative because I think that's much more uh, what it's all about, right? That's, I think that is the genuine value proposition of Bitcoin. And so it seems like, and there's been, you know, these ranching initiatives and meat initiatives, and it's great that people that are of like mind like that are coming together and the ranchers are getting orange pilled and the Bitcoiners are getting, you know, the nutrition and the sustenance and the food yeah. supply that, yeah, exactly. And I mean, that, I said opt out, but you know, the, the term I prefer is because I mean, depending on how long you've been thinking about, you know, the society is fucked up narrative. The answer has always been to like, get out of Dodge, right? Like go up into the mountain or go to the beach or just get out of the madness. And while I can certainly understand that and have, and am kind of pursuing that approach in my own life, um, opting out is not a very engaging attitude. It's like rejecting the world. You're like, fuck it all. It's too crazy. Get, get me the hell out of here. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's the mindset that we're supposed to have. Like that doesn't right. cause you to, you know, to think about new ideas and to engage new ideas and to try to build and create and all that kind of stuff. I think the opt in attitude is way more creative. And I yeah. think a lot of people are starting to realize that what Bitcoin initially seems like an opt out. And of course, you know, this is kind of just semantic difference because it is, but it's much, you know, I think it's much more helpful and it really does represent an opt-in because when you opt into Bitcoin, you see all the discourse that's happening. It becomes super intellectually stimulating. You learn about a bunch of other stuff. You meet a, a bunch of like-minded people. You start changing your life in certain ways. Like it's, mm -hmm. and you basically become a part of that so-called parallel economy. And it's that very parallel economy that ends up out competing and starving the thing that you were previously opting out of. You know, that, that's mm -hmm. the hope, right? That it just ends up winning out in the end, however long it takes. And that's how we kind of shift from the dumpster fire of now to the bright orange future. That's right. And, you know, there's no geographical frontier. I mean, yeah, I guess we could all go up to the Yukon or, you know, down to the South Pole or something, but that's, that's not going to happen. And, right. and so the, the frontier really becomes kind of a virtual frontier or it becomes, you know, maybe a shifting back into 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 the rural or trying to find a new place kind of within the within the borders but what you're saying is so true about bitcoin opening doors i mean the only reason that i started fooling around with the solar stuff is because a buddy of mine sent me an old s9 and he said hey these things are real cheap i just want you to play with this you know and i i hadn't myself done any anything serious with mining and um so i set this thing up in my house and i'm sitting there i've, I've underclocked it and it's churning away hashing for some pool. And I think, oh man, this is really cool. I really like doing this. I like being a part of it. But I, you know, pencil out the uh, the numbers in terms of what I'm, I'm paying per kilowatt hour for electricity. And, it, you know, it just makes no sense. I'm, I'm lighting money on fire. But I say, <laughs> oh, if I could, if I could actually produce energy, you know, what would that look like? You know, could the solar thing kind of pencil out? So, I mean, you know, Bitcoin in many ways was really the impetus for me to start investigating you know, how energy is produced. And, and I, I think that's, it's very much true what you're saying that um, to convince yourself of Bitcoin's efficacy, you know, admittedly, if, if you're a, if you're a curious, skeptical person, you've got to get up to speed on a lot of 
different stuff. And um, I think that can be a really an amazingly gratifying uh, process for a lot of people that, that, that brings people together in new ways. Totally, totally. The world is kind of, well, everything's fresh and new with the, with this one little change in your perspective. And it's, it's amazing that it can have such a profound influence, you know, and, and in, you know, I often talk about also the, in the attempt to understand, you know, so-called understand uh, what Bitcoin is, you find yourself having to consult like a, a number of different fields from technology to energy to, you know, uh, philosophy, like wherever, now some are more drawn to one versus the other, but the point is kind of like, this thing seems so novel that to get the proper context to, again, you know, air quotes, understand it, you end up having to go in so many different directions and you had, you end up having to go so deep into all those directions. And I think that's what, what makes the realization, if I can call it that of Bitcoin so profound is because, you know, like you go off in all those different directions and then you try to find your way back to how your newfound knowledge in those areas help you understand Bitcoin more. And that just exacerbates the process. You know, this, this is kind of like the, the mind blowing nature of the trip down the rabbit hole because it, it kind of, it never ends. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it, as you say, I mean, amongst other things, it's just very gratifying. It's very intellectually stimulating. And I think, you know, my, one of my, my experience was, you know, I'd always been curious, but you know, the world, the perception of the world was that it was super messed up and that doesn't really inspire you to pursue those things. You know, not only do you may not have the, the, the security around the future and therefore, you know, you, you don't feel like it's a good use of time, but you're all, you're also, you know, there's an aspect of nihilism that creeps in. You're like, well, what's the point? You know, like, yeah, what can I do? Whatever. Um, but when that gets turned around, then, you know, the world becomes relevant again, if I can put it that way, or more relevant than ever. And then you also have this tool to kind of probe it more deeply and to give you the security and the comfort and the confidence that the future is going to be there as something to engage. And therefore all that probing is even more relevant, you know, and that seems to be what's happening to a, a lot of the people that are hard, you know, way down this rabbit hole is like their lives are being changed by just kind of coming alive by being invigorated with the, the inquiry, the, the search, the, education, the wanting to contribute, the wanting to engage, you know, and it's just, I'm always blown away by how positive it is. You know, I speak to a lot of so, you know, so-called plebs or not famous Bitcoin people on, on this show. And mm -hmm. it's always uh, so amazing just to, you can see the look in their eyes, you know, like what, whatever the situation was, usually there's some sort of like hero's journey element of the story. Things weren't so great career-wise, financially, uh, emotionally, psychologically, all that kind of stuff. And this thing has been the catalyst for changing all that around. And now there's just this tremendous uh, enthusiasm for what can be. Mm -hmm, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, if, if people around the world today are looking for, you know, something to fix these gargantuan problems that we perceive to have uh, or that they, they might, you know, perceive exist, what could be better than something that causes that effect in people? You know, that seems to be the thing, not yeah. whatever policy you're, you're, you're lobbying the government to enact or whatever, like that type of change on an individual level seems to be it. And, you know, it's just so awesome to see it. Oh, I think there's a profound shift in how someone looks at their own life. If you take something as fundamental as how, how am I saving my value? 
how am I protecting what I work for? And am I, am I seeing, am I seeing the fruits of my labor build towards something? And it's harder than ever, man, to, to get that in kind of the, you know, the world. Uh, I look at house prices around me and I, it's staggering. I mean, (laughs) I make good money doing software stuff and it's like, the prospect of getting a single family home for my, you know, myself, my family, like that's, that's increasingly like getting out of reach. I'm just like, man, if I didn't have a high flute and white collar job, like what the hell would, would life look like? So if Mm. you can, if, if, you know, Bitcoin, I think really almost in that it's a, you know, it's very unstable in terms of its exchange rate, but it's, it gives you kind of a new basis to look at how you're saving, how you're accruing value. And, and I think that can be very empowering for someone because if they feel like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm setting a little aside in this Bitcoin thing and maybe I'm actually working towards something. Maybe I'm, you know, going to have, have some value that's, that's actually kind of building. Um, I think that's a, that's a big shift for people, but then from, you know, the intellectual curiosity standpoint, I can say having been in Bitcoin now, I mean, I, I started working on core in 2015, seven years ago now, which is crazy. Um, but I'm still feeling invigorated on a regular basis about things that I find, you know, I've, I've loved watching this Noster uh, product emerge. I mean, really protocol emerge. And, um, you know, I was looking la- uh, the other day at like getting onto Noster and what that process looks like. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to get the app on my Android phone. And I, I know I have to generate a key pair. And so I'm going to generate a key pair, but I don't want to put that key on my phone because I don't really trust my phone that much if this is my social identity. So, so we should have this notion of like sub keys in Noster. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, this thing is just getting born. It's under active development. I can go and like work on this and actually, you know, help devise a way to do this, this sub key approach. Like, and so I, I think, you know, and you're talking about something as fundamental as potentially rewiring, you know, how digital socialization happens. And there's like plausibility behind that, that possibility. And I think Bitcoin's very, very similar where you're like, wow, I could be in the middle of the rebirth of the monetary system and I can actually play a part in this and I can, you know, you know, have my feet on the ground, like how, how incredible um, that could be kind of whatever your skill set is, like even just, Mm -hmm. you know, downloading a wallet and like, transacting in UTXOs, it's very possible that 50 years from now, you know, if you've sent an on-chain transaction in Bitcoin, like it's very possible that your descendants are going to be like, no, you didn't. You're full of <laughs> shit. Like you didn't, you didn't send a Bitcoin transaction. Nobody does. You know, like uh, it, it could be that, that scarce of thing. So even just kind of like showing up and getting acquainted with, you know, the technology and what's going on, I think uh, is very invigorating. Totally. You know, and you, you sometimes it's easy to forget that you could be smack in the middle of like one of the biggest historical moments in human history. I mean, you know, I'm definitely one of those people that gets hyperbolic about uh, Bitcoin and its implications. And, you know, I make no bones about that. I mean, some that's what I feel drawn to. And, you know, people can take it or leave it. But um, if that is the case, you know, it's pretty crazy that we all, as you say, have the capacity to engage it in some manner. I mean, every, any, everyone in different ways. And, you know, as you just said, like maybe just in very simple ways of being, using it, using it early, using it to foster more stability and security in your life and to avail of all the benefits that just those two things alone engender, you know, when people, you know, 
and I think a lot of this happens on a subconscious level. You know, people don't necessarily realize that, you know, they're being stolen from from their fiat savings balances, let's say. But there's mm. like this, there's this underlying anxiety that in, induces that deprivation. <clears throat> As you said, I mean, like the price of things going up and your purchasing power not uh, rising in tandem with that. I mean, that it's just a growing anxiety, like the world is less available to you, less and less and less and less. And, and you have to work more and more, you have to give away more in your time. And I think, you know, that means your conception of the future is going to be dramatically different. Like, oh, well, can I afford that home? Can I afford the family? Can I do these things? And you, it just causes you to shrink into yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing that all over the place today in whatever it is, you know, in, in social unrest or in, you know, diseases of despair, so-called like, you know, depression and that kind of stuff. I mean, drug abuse, substance abuse. I mean, the fuck, it's crazy how many like people are dying annually in the U S from like the fentanyl and opioid thing. I mean, that just doesn't get any press. And it's like, it's over a Vietnam every year in terms of its death toll. It's like, um, and how much of that, I mean, again, lots of causes, of course, but there's just, there's this sense that the future is, is, there's less and less future, right? And people just withdraw into the moment and whatever their thing is, it kind of destroys them. And I think Bitcoin just turns that right on its head and starts mm -hmm. to give you a notion that the future could be better and also a tool for helping you to, you know, build brick by brick toward that. And as you do that, your confidence grows you and you start expanding outward. You start expanding into new social relationships. You start expanding into new intellectual journeys, expanding into new, you know, uh, however you deploy your your time and energy capital work career you know entrepreneurship that kind of stuff and that's what seemingly what makes people feel the most content you know that's where the people feel the most happy it's not that you're not happiest when you don't have anything to do you're happy happiest when you have meaningful things to do with people that you're aligned with i mean there's nothing better than that it could be the shittiest work in the world but it's like if you feel that it's uh move it, it's contributing to something meaningful and you're on you're the people with whom you're doing it are on a similar mission i mean that's that's what generates the best camaraderie that's what generates the best you know feeling of accomplishment and like to bring it back i mean if we are in the middle of such a profound change or if we're at the beginning rather of such a profound change getting going i mean it's it's i mean it's it's kind of hard to think about that you know i don't think we can extricate ourselves sufficiently from the situation to really appreciate that but i mean i guess the only the only reasonable response is gratitude it's like holy shit wow we get to be here now mm -hmm, for this mm -hmm. and and to your point i think like perhaps more than anything that's one of the the primary impetuses for calling you forth to something grander you know like trying to extract something greater out of yourself than you might've previously expected of yourself. You know, it's like, wow, like if you're really here at this time for something of this magnitude, maybe you should, uh, maybe it inspires you to be more than you previously had expected yourself to be in whatever. Or make, yeah, that make the best be. use of the time you have. Yeah. While yeah. This stuff's going on. Yeah. And it seems like that's the case. So happy days. Um, Absolutely. Speaking of, of work and meaningful work, one of the reasons why I wanted to uh, speak with you today is obviously around the work you've done uh, with vaults and putting forward that proposal. And there's been a lot of discussion in recent years about things like that. 
and even more broadly around just changes or upgrades to Bitcoin and how we should be thinking about them. I spoke with Lop a week or two ago around mm -hmm. this topic, and I just feel like it's it's probably insufficiently covered. I mean, it, it's very it seems to me it's very opaque. Like you know, a, a lot of your average Bitcoiners will just kind of, you know, the the people in the know, like the the gray beards or the devs. You know, there's a lot of deference to their expertise. And right. then you you just kind of sit back and wait to see how it plays out socially, and, and and that seems to be the process. And you know, there's a there's pros and cons to that. I mean, the kind of the opaqueness of the rough consensus, the social consensus process is is probably a feature, not a bug, because it makes it less co-optable, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, but the lack of clarity also means that you know, well, anytime you lack clarity, you're not in the best position to make an informed decision. You know, so I. I just wanted to have you on to broaden the scope and, and, you know, contribute to this conversation about how we should be thinking about this stuff generally. Um, so I don't know, I don't know if you have a particular place where you want to start or if you have any yeah, comments sure. on uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of describing the duality between the process not being well-defined, let's say in terms of how, you know, Bitcoin's rules can can evolve over time, um, and you know the, the the fact that that makes the system resilient, but that it introduces a lot of complexity in terms of and and you know as you say opaqueness in terms of how how it actually does change, and um, it's something that I've you know kind of had a front row seat to for a little while. Um, and I think it's it's a little bit misunderstood. Um, I, th I think many people who participate in Bitcoin um, a little take for granted um, the way that maintenance has worked, the way that the previous upgrades have worked in terms of SegWit and Taproot. Um, because really the reality is e even though, I mean, I, I think everybody has to be cautious because even though it's very easy to say, oh yes, Bitcoin is leaderless and um, it's, 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 it, there's no structure, there's no uh, enforced process for how things change. You have to be very careful of the situation you can get into where there is a structure and there are leaders, but they're very implicit um, and they're not well understood. Um, and I think that, you know, really we've been in, in the situation where the last to softworks, which have been um, profound, you know, reimaginings in some ways of, of how things work in Bitcoin. And I, I think they've been great changes. I'm, you know, I'm very happy with both Segwit and Taproot, um, having been a pretty boots on the ground user of them. But, um, but you know, the, the reality is that those changes have stemmed from a pretty small group of people. And, you know, within the technical community, I think we've kind of developed this implicit unstated muscle memory of like, okay, well, you know, these guys constructed a change, these guys signed off on a change. It must, you know, it's gotta be good. Um, and in reality, these, these proposals are, are very difficult to evaluate and they're, mm -hmm. they're very difficult to sort of game out over time, even for people, you know, who are, who have pretty high technical capability. So I think, you know, for the, the, the past few years, we've been in this situation where 
most people agree that Bitcoin needs to change somehow and um, or continue to change somehow. And, uh, you know, we can have a discussion about whether whether that has merit or not. Um, personally, I, I think, you know, Bitcoin definitely uh, would really benefit from changing in, in certain in certain ways, even after being kind of risk adjusted for the, the severity of the changes. Um, so most people agree that Bitcoin has to kind of progress and the, the protocol has to move forward in, in some way. Um, but there, I think there isn't really like a well-defined path for how to do that when you've basically got, you know, the guy or the group of people who have been really spearheading the, the protocol for the last call it five years um, or maybe more, honestly, when they kind of abdicate that responsibility a little bit uh, because they say, Hey, it's not a good it's not a good state for us to bring the tablets down the mountain and say, this is what it's going to be because that's, that's not how this can work for perpetuity. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you've got very talented, influential people who realize that and they don't, they don't want to be a part of really the consensus change process. So you're kind of in this awkward, you know, the, the analogy I've used before is like, you're sort of in your, you know, wandering the desert for 40 years stage where there's like a bit of a vacuum in terms of process. And, and there are still participants, um, you know, myself among them, but it's not, well, there, there aren't like great conventions for what is social consensus? What is, you know, what is enough? Um, And so it's been interesting to navigate. I mean, my own, my own approach here has been to really narrow what I'm trying to do and to like narrow the proposal, because I think you've seen a lot of people um, pitch very general changes that are kind of on the nature, uh, you know, in the same nature as Taproot or SegWit, where you're, you're really introducing something that like totally opens up the protocol into this, into this new space. Um, And um, I, I think people are, are cautious and wary of those for very good reason, because it's, they're just, you know, the, the more open-ended the design change, the, the harder it is to reason about and really kind of assess. Um, and really, you know, my fixation has been on the vault stuff and we can either, we can talk about that in whatever detail you want to, but I, I really just wanted to see, I wanted to see the conversation move in, in, in a bit more of a narrowed, tangible direction um, towards just being able to, to more safely custody Bitcoin. For everybody and so that's kind of that's what i've been up to yeah we'll we'll come back to that in a bit for sure but you know in, and if you started working on it in in 15 then i guess you came in right before segwit basically um yeah but what was the the vibe or the mindset or the perspective on changes prior to that because i mean it seems to me we're in a era or a period now where it's just de facto sort of and by the way, I'll preface all my questions here by saying I'm seeking an informed perspective on all this. So to the extent that I, you know, steel man or, you know, represent an opposing view, you know, take it for trying to triangulate in on the right perspective to have. But to what extent, it, oh, sorry, it seems like now we have like this just de facto assume like soft forks happen every so often and we debate, you know, why they happen, if they're needed or if there's just a great opportunity or, or what have you. Prior to SegWit, was that kind of the understanding or, you know, was 
SegWit done because it had to be done in that way? And has the has the approach changed as a result of that, of having normalized changes and upgrades in this way, whereas prior to that, were they less considered or were they not, um, I think you know what I'm trying to say, were they, were they not yeah. kind of in the scope of how to uh, treat this thing? Yeah, you know, I think that the history before SegWit's really worth revisiting because um, you saw a few softworks happen before SegWit um, that really happened much more casually. Um, not, not, not a huge fuss was made about the activation of like check lock time verify, check sequence verify, um, a few others. It's just kind of rolled out, and because you know because they were very, they were they were more narrow changes to Bitcoin than like I mean Segwit's like a total overhaul, Taproot to some extent is like a total overhaul, um, but prior to Segwit. You know, you, you have the combination of the, the proposals just being more tightly scoped, but then you have the fact that like the genesis of SegWit, as well as the deployment process was just like fraught with drama. Um, you know, the whole, the whole reason that SegWit, you know, part, part of the motivations with SegWit was of course the block size and, you know, the idea that blocks were filling up and we needed to, to address some kind of capacity improvement somehow. But also you had a kind of like unrelated concern, which was this idea of transaction malleability and that, you know, that you couldn't really do lightning or you could do lightning, but it would be very ham-fisted if, if you didn't have this stable transaction ID scheme. Um, so, so I just think SegWit kind of like peed in the punch bowl a little bit in terms of like, wow, it's this, this software process is like really excruciating. It's really dangerous. You know, you're going to introduce, you know, cataclysms um, when really, you know, the, the softworks that preceded it were, were pretty casual. Um, you know, I mean, pay to script hash was a pretty major revamping of how Bitcoin works. Um, I still wouldn't put it on the same level as like SegWit or, or Taproot, but, um, but it was pretty substantial. And I just think, you know, when, when that was rolled out, I mean, Bitcoin was a much smaller system and, and people just didn't care as much, but, you know, obviously the, the, the scrutiny that people put on the, the change process is probably corollary to the kind of the market cap of the system. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's just gone up over time. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd really like to see again, I, you know, I think there are improvements for Bitcoin and I, I'd like to see, us consider a mode where we make kind of more tightly scoped changes that have kind of very readily observable value that's easy for people to assess and reason about and say, okay, well, this is the risk. These are the benefits. Um, whereas, you know, the, the last two softworks we've had have been just like massively positive, but massively profound and complicated changes. How much, like how how much of a distinction do you make between changes that quote unquote need to be made versus ones that you know should be made and mm -hmm. in the latter i mean kind of in both but definitely more so in the latter there's absolutely an element of whoever is proposing that change presuming to further define bitcoin right like bitcoin should is x right now let's say and it should be x plus y and that I would say is is more so the case in the latter. So 
I mean, how much of a distinction do you make between uh, the reasoning behind changes on those two sides? Yeah, I think you could come up with three buckets, right? There are changes that like absolutely positively need to be made. Some, some of them known, some of them unknown. So for example, you know, one of the changes that absolutely positively needs to be made at some point is um, one of the fields in the block header, uh, you know, past some date is just going to, you know, not, not be workable anymore. So, and mm-hmm. that, that'll amount to some kind of a fork. So like that's known, luckily very narrowly scoped. Um, you know, if there were some kind of major cryptographic break at some point that nobody saw coming, like that would be a, an absolutely positively need to change. Um, then there's a, then there's, you know, what, what I would maybe call like the nice to haves, you know, discretionary, um, you know, maybe you put like say op vault in that, that category, which is like, yeah, I think it represents say an order of magnitude improvement for the, the, the users of, of Bitcoin. You know, anybody who wants to custody coins, you probably get an order of magnitude, better solution for doing that. And I think if you want to see adoption by, you know, whether it's like a broadly deployed FETI network or uh, central banks or just individuals wanting to like make sure they can sleep at night um, custodying their coins. Like, I, I think that's great to have, but is it strictly required? No. Um, and then you've got this like middle category of things that keep me up at night a little bit from a kind of like usage projection standpoint. So the tidbit, you know, I've thrown around recently um, to a little bit of controversy is this idea that if you wanted to take Bitcoin and do absolutely nothing with the chain, um, but open a lightning channel for, for each person, you know, and let's say that you wanted to onboard 2 billion people, you know, mm-hmm. um, kind of given the current state of Bitcoin, uh, it would take you two years to do that. So this idea, you know, that, that we're going to be able to like facilitate the commerce of the world, um, you know, there might need to be changes to Bitcoin to make that happen. I'm not asserting that as being totally true, but I'm, I'm saying you've got to kind of entertain that, that possibility. And then another, um, another facet of that kind of middle ground is like, not a lot of people know this, but like right now there are some pretty glaring security vulnerabilities in lightning that really stem from the way that uh, the Bitcoin peer to peer network works, the way that transactions are broadcasted and, you know, the way that um, mempools become aware of transactions and the fact that you can sort of pin transactions based on the fee rate. And, you know, if you're dealing with a, a contracting setup, like in lightning where you've got these time sensitive operations that, that the users might need to do. Otherwise they lose their coins to an attacker. That stuff becomes really important. So, you know, again, that that's, it's not like something that is absolutely existential to fix, but it's something that you really, you really want to fix. Um, so I think, yeah, in my view, you've got those three buckets and you, you kind of want to treat them with, with the, uh, differing levels of, of severity. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think about, cause I, I, I think for most people, you know, one of the, and I think a lot of the devs would probably class like your, your average pleb Bitcoiner into this and perhaps somewhat pejoratively, but there's a, there's a recognition of the value of having an absolute 
in the form of of money, let's say. And I think that that is one of the reasons, among others, perhaps, that people are apprehensive about changing anything. It's like, look, we have this thing that's incredibly valuable, incredibly unique. Let's not mess with it. But, you know, some change is obviously required, as you just said. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious, like from your perspective and from your experience with with other devs, I mean, how much, well, maybe a overly basic way of saying this is how much patience should we have with the state of affairs as they are versus saying, no, like we should implement something like this now, you know? And so this is kind of out of the category of like, oh shit, we need to make this change. Otherwise things are going to be, you know, on fire versus like, okay, this thing's been out in the open for 14 years and sure, maybe we can't, you know, scale to 8 billion people right now, but things are working well enough. And how do we know that we shouldn't give it another 10 years to marinate as is to allow above protocol levels, entrepreneurial innovation to take place, to resolve some of them, to, to allow adopt more adoption to take place, allow our understanding of what this thing is and therefore how to engage it to evolve. So how do you think about having these ideas for, for features, let's say that you'd like to see protocol level and balancing that with what if we're just being impatient? That's a great question. And in many ways it, it comes back to like engineering risk management, you know? Um, and that's kind of an art, right? Like I, I think your, your instinct is absolutely right. Like why would we rush into some kind of profound scaling solution when, you know, right now the mempool isn't full and right now things, things work okay. Um, I think in general, that is the right disposition. I think when you start to have caveats on that is when, you know, people who are working kind of in the trenches on lightning are seeing like, Hey, you know, there are these attacks, there are these vulnerabilities out there, um, that, that we really need to shore up because right now maybe, there isn't a huge vested interest in say exploiting these things, but you know, if usage got big enough, if the channel sizes got big enough, like these would be real problems. So I think you, you can start to see situations emerge where the quote unquote experts are ringing alarm bells a little bit. Um, and I, you know, I think that's like a very interesting sub exploration to get into because groups of experts can be wrong and groups of experts can have vested interests. Mm. Groups of experts can become myopic because they're too close to the problem, but at the same time, they're still experts. And, you know, when you take your car to the mechanic, you're in a very difficult position because if he says your carburetor's busted, you know, or your fuel injection is busted, like, I, I mean, the best you can do, right, is get a second opinion if you're not a mechanic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's that's kind of, that's what this whole process is about. You know, we have, let's, let's be generous. And let's say we have 100 people on earth who are, are car mechanics for, for Bitcoin's consensus, right? Um, what's difficult about this process is, that in many ways the tail wags the dog. So like the community as a whole in Bitcoin is this cascade of people kind of looking 
looking to people who are more technically savvy than they are to sort of assess a proposal, right? And ultimately, like that kind of feeds back up into the hundred, say, hundred people who are the car mechanics, really saying, okay, for these reasons, I think this is good or this is bad. Mm-hmm. So it's a very difficult process, and people have kind of like a granularity of of um, kind of ability to do a ground assessment, but everybody should always remain skeptical of the limitations of, you know, groups of experts. And I think you're seeing this in medicine right now, kind of where you have a situation where it's like, you know what, Um, there are a whole lot of modern medical practices that are relatively contemporary that I feel like I should ignore because you've had a technocracy emerge and come up with a bunch of solutions that are way over-engineered and probably detrimental. So I'm going to ignore them. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's a fine impulse. And I think that's a, that's something that we'll always have to retain as a community. I just think you kind of have to, you really have to weigh it against what you're saying is like, what's, what's the current circumstance look like? What are the, what are the costs of maintaining the status quo? You know, for me in vaults, I, I look at the fact that like, it's plausible to me that, any exchange, even exchanges I respect could get hacked tomorrow and lose all their coins. And like, I think that really sucks. Like, I, I think we could live in a world where a river or a NIDIG um, is in a position where it's like, oh, you know, they're doing this specific configuration of custody. And like, if things go really wrong, they're not going to lose the coins. Maybe there will be a lockup period for a month or something, but they're not going to lose the coins. So I'd, I'd like to get there, but more, more broadly, what you're saying is right. You have to, you have to look at what the costs are right now. And then maybe if you want to be smart, maybe you can project a little bit into the future. Maybe you can say, okay, right now we've got 40 million unique entities using Bitcoin. You know, what does the world look like if it's 200 million? Like, and if there's, a run on central banks tomorrow, if there's a mass censorship event, if we get ordered by law to use CBDC, like what is our ability to react to that from a technical Mm -hmm. perspective? Mm -hmm. Is there a plausible argument back of the napkin math? Like, could we, could we, could Bitcoin carry us through that? I think like that's the analysis worth doing and that's where the art comes in. Yeah. You know, it could you you brought up Nostra before? I mean, it could be something like that. I mean, it almost seems like a far more likely mass adoption event than all of our collective orange pilling efforts. You know, and people realizing the monetary significance of Bitcoin. It's like, wow, this app is top ten in all these different uh, jurisdictions, and very shortly, you know, a like is going to be a lightning payment or something like that. And then just you know, a lot of people's brain just goes boom, and they're like, oh my god. Well, I need to get a balance on, you know, so that I can engage in this and send payments and stuff. And then once you start doing that, you're like, oh, this shit has legs, you know, maybe I should learn more about it. And, and you know, things could really take off like that. And if history is any indication, probably will happen in sequences like that, you know, where there'll be these watershed moments where, uh, you know, cultural moments where people re- realize or wake up to this kind of stuff. Um, but But back to the what we're discussing. I mean, how do you think Bitcoin gets defined? You know, cause we're back and thinking before, and I might've even said this already, I'm not sure. Like I, people like yourself obviously 
have more ability and more knowledge and expertise about how to make changes to Bitcoin. And I was going to say that doesn't necessarily mean they know what changes should be made to Bitcoin. Now, that's a bit unfair because your closeness to it gives you more insight than most of like where it's deficient. And so that can contribute to your, you know, your notion or your perspective on how it should be changed. But I think not exclusively, right? Like normal users and people out there in the world can can and do define Bitcoin for themselves and they can have an opinion and an informed one about what Bitcoin is and what it should be. I'll be, you know, and the, the the difference is they're just not in a position to actually make it happen. So how do you well, I mean, maybe one, maybe the right question is, is what is Bitcoin to you? I know that's probably a, diff, a bit of a challenging question, but also secondary to that, what is the process of, of Bitcoin being defined? Obviously it's part, you know, you're part of it because here you are proposing something that will literally define, like when someone says, what is Bitcoin? Oh, it's mm -hmm. well this thing. And if you lose your coins, then there's this period and you don't, you know, so how do you define it? How do you think the process of its definition is taking place? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just a, a quick note. Uh, something you said reminded me of this this Hayek quote that um, I'm certainly going to butcher, but it's something like the task of economics is to demonstrate to men, um, you know, the failings of attempting to design what they think they can control or something like that. You right, know? It's like, right. like I, I am reminded of that with, you know, just because you're sort of fluent with the mechanism of how a soft fork activates, that doesn't, you, some of these things we can't design and no, no mm -hmm. one person can hold in their head just what's going to be capable on a second layer, say, um, though we can, you know, make specific assessments about where, categorically, you know, some second layer pattern might be failing because of the base layer. But, but anyway, onto your question, which is like a really meaty one. Um, what is Bitcoin? Who defines it? Who changes it? Um, and, you know, I might, I might glibly ask you, what is America, right? Who defines it? How has it changed? Well, with America, you know, the corporal body maybe of America might be the documents that it was founded on. It might be, mm. you know, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, you know, um, just in the same way that perhaps, you know, Bitcoin source code might be those documents. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, somewhat, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, right, those are living documents. The Bill of Rights gets amended um, for, for better and for worse, mostly for worse. Um, Bitcoin source code gets amended. But, you know, maybe more, more interestingly. So you have like kind of the, the tangible manifestation, you know, in these documents, but then there's a mythology, right? There's, there's an understanding, there's an inherent worldview. That's the result of generations and generations of history and cultural evolution. And that's an almost like stronger, more important binding force than the documents. I mean, really, it's hard to tell which is stronger, but like they 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 strengthen each other, right? And they're mm. both necessary because mm. if if you just have the documents, well, you know, so much of reality is say judicial interpretation, right? Yeah. Who's informing the judiciary? Who's what what ideological framework is guiding people when there's 
the sort of necessary ambiguity in the written form that that comes up over time and and we're going to have similar situations in bitcoin and whether we like it or not the the tangible elements of the system can and will change we have to make sure that there is a cultural bulwark against changes that are really like that really existentially challenge you know the system or really go against the nature of the system in the way that you know striking the particular bill of right amendment that prohibited income tax you know was a a profoundly negative change that runs contrary to kind of the the, the founding distinguishing nature of america um so who controls this right like how does this play out well at face value, you know, it's really important um, that the constellation of fiat on and off ramps recognize some version of Bitcoin. It's really important that whatever gray, black peer-to-peer -peer markets exist where people are trading Bitcoin for goods, it's, it's relevant what Bitcoin that set of people considers to be Bitcoin. It's really relevant when you decide to save in Bitcoin what software you're running when you actually receive the Bitcoin that you've traded something for, you know, those are all, those are all relevant considerations. So, you know, I wrote a, an internal paper um, at some point that wasn't released about like the power structures in Bitcoin. You've got three main constituencies. You've got sort of economic users, you've got miners and you've got developers. Um, and that's a very coarse way of putting it, but you know, if you want to be coarse, kind of those are the, the, the ways to slice it up. And, what Bitcoin is, is kind of the like spooky interaction between, you know, those, those three classes of uh, entities. That's a very interesting answer. Um, and going back to your point about, you know, what is America and the, you know, the founding documents and such, you know, it makes me think of that notion or phrase, you know, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And it's not that you exclusively adhere to one or the other. If you don't have the letter, the spirit is too malleable. It's like it's too chaotic. If you don't have the spirit, the letter is too uh, restrictive, is too confining. You know, and this, you know, I'm a big fan of Peterson. This kind of gets into that ongoing dynamic between the necessary order that can become tyrannical or stultifying, if not if it doesn't have that revivifying force of the chaos of the, the, the good potential from the chaos and, you know, civilization, human consciousness, all sorts of different systems are kind of that balance between the two. And so it's interesting to think of, of Bitcoin in that way. If you take, you know, the code, the protocol as being, you know, the letter and then, you know, what is the spirit and what animates the spirit, you know, and this is perhaps where more of the, the philosophical sort of discourse around Bitcoin takes place and it, it perhaps is relevant um, and it's not just indulgent and whatever, even though, you know, I'm sure much of it sometimes can be. Um, yeah. I mean, wh where, from, from where does that spirit come from? And I think that this is, I alluded to the value of the absoluteness before, and, you know, and I think that's certainly, that's part of the mythology, right? Something, something that cannot, be changed or at least an attribute or an element that cannot be changed and how unique that is, but also how valuable that is. And so you have, I mean, that's part of the guiding spirit and that's I, perhaps that's part of the spirit that says, don't change, you know, like 
that's part of the spirit that tries to keep it within certain confines. But, you know, there's a question here where, well, maybe this is another one I'll put forward to you is if Bitcoin didn't change at all from where it is today, you know, and, and things were just maintained. I know a lot of people would probably say sufficient for me, you know, and to your point, like, um, perhaps there'd be an issue with everyone being able to use in a self uh, sovereign sort of way. And so there'd be centralization and there'd be custodials and that would custodians and that would come with its own risks and trade-offs. Um, but some people would be down for that. I think, you know, the, the more developer perspective would be, or to what degree do you think if that were the case, it wouldn't be changed that it would be Bitcoin's undoing, but it could be atrophy. Um, do you think it needs to change and evolve in order to survive long-term or could it survive as is, but it may not just become what so many of us, you know, think it has the potential to become, which is, you know, basically the base layer for value transfer for humanity. And we'll, let's, let's hit on that. And I think we still, there's still some meat on the bone on the spirit versus the letter thing, but I wanted to throw this at you first. Yeah. I, I, I that's, that's the thing that keeps me up at night long-term is my contention is if we hit a state where let's say again, to be coarse here, just for, for expedience to say, if members of the middle class, whatever that is, aren't able to take maybe at some expense, uh, physical custody of their value of their Bitcoin. Um, I think we're, we're in a very dangerous position where Bitcoin has essentially, but Bitcoin would develop all the same, um, failings as gold has right now, or you, you, you know, there may, because for all I know, exactly. There may be a, you know, you keep all your gold in the London exchange warehouse, if you actually want to use it for, for commerce and God knows there may be a robust paper market. Um, there may be unallocated lots of physical gold where people think they actually own gold, but they don't. Um, and, you know, centralized powers can, can really make, can, can paper over Bitcoin and, and uh, you know, can introduce a de facto inflation rate if people can't kind of plausibly take possession of, of their coin. So that's, that's what I, that's my worry. And I'm, you know, I, I have been uh, known to be pessimistic every now and again. So it, it, the other side of that is, well, maybe even if something like that does happen, Bitcoin, the frictionlessness of Bitcoin relative to gold might allow you to get into a situation where, yes, maybe it's, it's more centralized than it is today. Yes, maybe people of the middle class really can't take possession, but maybe we've, you know, with something like Fetty or, um, you know, like a liquid type design, maybe we've hit a situation where there's a free banking to the point, like where there's, there's, you know, enough entities keeping each other in check that we're in kind of a better situation than we are today. And, you know, kind of central banking as we know it right now isn't, isn't really practical or feasible. Um, so like maybe there's some middle path where uh, we could leave Bitcoin as is and 
but that that would still that it's not clear to me how that would work not that it needs to be clear to me because i'm you know i can't keep all the stuff in my head like anybody else um but i do i i, I would be very worried if we if we started to get there without some some plausible mechanism for you know people to be able to get out get the get their value out um mm -hmm. i think mm -hmm. you should always be able to get your value out and move somewhere else because that's that's basically the the basis of the whole system. Um, you should be able to take take possession of your value, and if if there gets to be a day where that isn't the case, I, you know, I worry, and I think it's possible, it's perhaps even likely that Bitcoin needs to continue to change to 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 get us to that place. This one might be, um, well, as you said, your your. Um thought experiments about you know, what if you know a billion people tried to rush in and own their own bitcoin sort of thing and that would take a certain amount of time based on the you know the parameters of bitcoin and block space and stuff like that i mean how do you think that particular uh potential issue would be resolved because it's presumably a result of some of the more you know uh, fundamental or rigid components of bitcoin's nature or protocol you mean in terms of like how are we going to square the tension between you know bigger block size mean it's harder to sort of validate versus sort of capacity yeah basically i mean yeah. so let's go with your example I mean, how, how could eight billion people have their own utxo right right so a lot of the reason i'm you know i mean paying attention a lot of what's kind of captured my interest about this covenants idea and i don't know how familiar your audience is with the whole covenants story um i won't go into it you know unless unless you tell me you want to jump into it but one of the potential uses of covenants is this idea of a coin pool um which is you're you're sharing in a trustless way kind of similar like to a lightning channel you're doing a trustless share of a uh, one utxo and the idea is that, you know, some number of people off chain are doing, you know, transfers. Um, but then you're, you're potentially amortizing, you know, activity between more than just two people uh, across the transfer of one UTXO. So, you know, I think that's, there are a lot of open questions there. I, I have a little bit of skepticism in terms of being able to, you know, facilitate um, the ability of, any given party to kind of exit without everybody else having to re-coordinate. Um, so there's, there's a lot of in the weeds, you know, design discussion and proposals going on around an idea like that. You know, you might have um, something like channel factories, which is a little bit of a, a similar idea where you're kind of amortizing the opening of a bunch of lightning channels over maybe a single lightning channel. Um, you know, so there, there are a lot of ideas that people are, kicking around that aren't just kind of, Hey, let's increase the, the capacity of block size or, Hey, let's do something that compromises the ability to validate quickly and more, you know, in keeping with this classic Bitcoin idea of like, if me and John are, you know, swapping, um, doing a lot of transfers or doing something off chain, like maybe that can just live off chain for the most part. And maybe we just go to chain if there's some kind of a dispute. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, just, just kind of continuing that idea, um, and seeing to what extent 
we can really like juice that concept to to get as much activity off chain as we can do you think there's anything about bitcoin that should never be changed yeah i i, <laughs> I mean i think you know this is layup right like the the supply um well well you say it's layup but you know there, there are certain people in your community that don't hold that as sacrosanct you know so i had to ask yeah I think that's right. I think you're right. Um, I mean, there are times, look, where like the, the technocratic part of my brain is like, oh God, what if Satoshi didn't choose the right parameters? What if, what if the supply schedule isn't right? Oh God, couldn't we just have like 20 more years of, you know, better emissions to, um, I, I don't know to what extent that stuff, that stuff actually matters or it doesn't. I, I think my brain's not big enough to be able to figure that out. But I, I do know that a fundamental premise of the system. I mean, the, the value prop is the fixed supply. And if you start monkeying with anything even near the supply, um, you're just really violating the, 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 the nature and the expectations that people have around having participated in this system. So I don't think that that will ever change in, in any real way. I mean, if, uh, if there's movement to, it's almost certainly going to be because, you know, Bitcoin's been, very widely adopted and the, 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 the contemporary guard right now sees a way to co-opt it and they're trying to kind of reintroduce the same monetary levers that they have right now over Bitcoin. So, you know, I, I think if it ever comes to that, um, uh, I'll be fighting tooth and nail um, unless somehow there's really, you know, some kind of existential thing with Bitcoin. But even then, I, I just think you know, I think you can quibble about the supply schedule. I think what's absolutely unquibbleable is the, the cap. It's just the mm -hmm. 21 million. That's got to be, you know, that's got to be or the, or the system's over. Yeah. I mean, this is, I agree. Uh, but this is another one of those kind of like philosophical discussions where, because you could look at every component, right? The block time, you know, how many blocks, but, you know, there's, there's so many elements of this 21 million the having cycle, all these things like, oh, well, you know, adoption would have been better if we did this, or the economics would be slightly improved if we did this, and the security would be better if we did that. And there's so many things you could potentially change that it begs the question, like, is it not more valuable? You know, there's a, there's a Tower of Babel metaphor in here somewhere, but is it not more valuable to subject yourself to a absolute set of constraints or parameters and you know, force yourself to adapt to them for the value of the absolute itself, rather than you know tinkering until you, you know, playing God as it were, and tinkering all the way because you think this will be better and that'll be better and that'll be better until you end up destroying the very thing that you, you know, uh, what you th you thought that was the most valuable. And the, I guess the question is, is like, well, if you agree to that premise. And I think a lot of people probably do. It's like, well, what should be absolute, right? Like to, to what degree should we be subjecting ourselves to the absolute and forcing ourselves to conform around it and allow that to be the most generative, the most creative um, of the good so-called or of like the, the benefits that we all believe are uh, possible here, which which one should remain that way for that generative effect, you know? And it seems your answer is, I think the obvious one for most people, it's like, well, definitely 
you know, the, the supply cap, but anything else, is it just that, or are there other things that should not be tinkered with? I mean, certainly, um, I think coin confiscation, you know, this idea, some, some people have, Oh, we could, you know, fork away Satoshi's lost coins. Um, I, th I think, you know, anytime you're challenging property rights within Bitcoin in any sense, I think that's just a total, total affront um, and totally outside the bounds of a uh, polite company, really. Uh, but it's hard, it's hard for me to kind of think any more specific than that. You know, I mean, personally, I don't think the block time is so relevant. I don't think the retargeting period is so relevant. I don't think having is so relevant. Those, those things to me feel like implementation details. I'm sure there's somebody out there who can maybe give you great rationale for them. But uh, from my perspective, I, they, they, they do seem kind of arbitrary. Um, but won't, so they I'm not sure, be, but I mean, won't they always be arbitrary? You could yeah, change yeah. them in a way that would be less arbitrary. Yeah. Well, and I want to, you know, I think the, I think my particular answers there are uninteresting. What I want to reemphasize is the interestingness of what you said, which is that maybe there's, there, there, there certainly is kind of a sacred value in not changing things and having a really strong culture of, of not changing those, those sort of economic, those, those things which are, kind of the externally observable manifestations of like what the Bitcoin system is for. I think there's tremendous value in not changing those things, because again, to, to return to the example of America, you know, as soon as we started monkeying with the framework, I mean, in, in a profound way, as soon as we started to repeal and amend bills of rights and um, like, that's just, you're just kind of, you're, you're starting the erosion um, really, as, as soon as you, you contradict the fundamental nature of, of the system, you're starting the erosion. The question that I asked myself and like, you know, stop me if this is too cosmic, but never, it's like, what if, what if this is, you know, in the, in the sort of Petersonian model of things where you've got these anabolic and catabolic forces, what if there's like a greater cycle that happens? Where, what if, what if, things in reality have a lifetime and systems have a lifetime and Bitcoin may not be exempt from that. You know, maybe Bitcoin does exactly what we needed to do for hundreds, thousands of years, but eventually this, this natural process of entropy sets in, in the way that it's set in on America, in the way that it sets in, in our, in our parents and ourselves, you know, and, and, and they die and we die. And that might be coming, you know, I, I hope it's not. And I guess we should design, we should design against that. Right. And I, I think that Bitcoin has the potential to be very low entropy uh, after a while, but, you know, in the same way that gold served us really well for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and then Bitcoin came along and just completely displaced it. You know, I think we shouldn't exempt ourselves from the possibility that one day that's coming for Bitcoin too. But I guess when you're making day-to-day -day design choices, you know, maybe it's not such a relevant concern. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that in one second, but I, I agree um, with your, again, the, the use of the founding documents of the U S because it's like, once you start making changes and you presume to know the reason and the rationale of the changes that you're making, 
which is almost, I mean, again, that's so tricky because you have to appreciate there are always unknown unknowns. So your knowledge is never complete and yet you act, right? And so it's always finding that balance between, well, is this act, is this change, is this decision sufficiently within the realm of the known and the expected to both not deleteriously affect something or catastrophically affect something, but still be enough in the realm of the unknown potential to bring about something good. Cause that's your whole reason for doing it in the first place, you know? And, and I just, humility is the word that comes to mind for navigating that properly. Anytime yeah. there's, there's too much arrogance, hubris, you know, all that kind of stuff, much of which characterizes the, the scientific, uh, circumstance that we find ourselves in the world today, you're going to make so many wrong decisions where you're, you're, you're going to bring about probably you're going to do more harm than good because you're not sufficiently humble. You're not sufficiently appreciating the unknown unknowns. You're, you're ascribing too much knowledge to yourself and you're just going to fuck shit up. Right. And it's how, like, how do you find that balance? And, and your example with the amendments, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is, and has come to mind before, it's like, to what extent does normalizing change or normalizing the frequency of change may not affect you in a negative way in the short term, but does so in the long term. So this kind of goes back to our, our question about like, what were soft forks like before SegWit and after? If they become normalized and there's not this like incredibly contentious uh, aura around them, then do they become less and less and less contentious to become more and more and more frequent? And then, oops, on one, we really fuck things up and we can't go back. Or someone saw that and it became more easy to co-opt or wh whatever the case may be. Like it's, And again, I, I don't know what the answer is there because as we said before, I mean, there's this tension between the spirit and the letter and you're mm -hmm. always mm -hmm. trying to navigate that. But it, it seems like at least a component of navigating that properly is subjecting yourself to something absolute. And of course, th this goes off and you talk about going cosmic. I mean, this brings us right into the realm of the religious and the philosophical domain, because that's primarily what that deals with. And a lot of people just shrug that off as, you know, superstitious nonsense. But I think it's been central to human civilization forever because there's a recognition of the value of subordinating yourself to something, subordinating yourself to something absolute for the humility that inculcates in how you make those decisions. And so, you know, we, that's a question that we have to contend with in terms of making changes to Bitcoin, it seems. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so for myself, you know, I, I think there are two kind of guiding principles when I think about changing Bitcoin. Um, you know, number one is kind of non-contagion. So I think if you want to make a change to the consensus, you have to do it in such a way that you ensure that, you know, people who want to interact with this new change, any failure there isn't going to spill over into the rest of the system. And obviously that's, you know, that can be a little bit difficult to reason about. But I think the second thing is that you really, you know, property rights are sacrosanct. And I think we have to develop, if, if we're going to win here, we have to develop an extreme sensitivity to being able to root out when property rights are being challenged or at, at risk within Bitcoin versus things that are really more just kind of like procedural. It's like, if, if I, 
you know, with like check clock time verify, like that's, that's not challenging anybody's property rights. That's just saying, Hey, we introduced kind of an additional uh, tool constraint that people who want to write contracts can introduce if they want to. And there's not, you know, there's no uh, externality on the ability of people to validate. There's no, you know, risk of that spilling over into some unrelated, you know, existing coin. So I think what's really key for us and it, and it, and it really, I mean, it goes back to, what you emphasize, what you're emphasizing about these the spiritual or re religious, you know, far-sighted like nature of building up this culture and preserving the culture and not letting the culture degrade in the same way that we don't let the software, the the source code, the documents, the the tangible manifestation of the system degrade. You have to do that same thing in culture because culture is what what keeps people able to discern between changes that say compromise the property rights versus changes that are well isolated and, you know, big, you know, value adds. Um, so it's, uh, and that's tough, right? Absolutely. And I, I think it's partially tough because nobody decides what the culture is going to be. You know, if anything, the thing around which we are coalescing, the thing around the thing, you know, you, you used the word sacred a few moments ago in relation to the uh, 21 million hard cap. And I suspect you use that in a somewhat of a tongue in cheek way, maybe not in the traditional use of the word, but here it is showing up in your selection of words to use. And I think, uh, you know, that's kind of speaks. So we're all kind of coming around this thing religiously. We're kind of treating it in that way uh, in, in the certain, and, you know, so it, it, it really begs the question, like, what is the right approach to take to that? And, and I think the question about culture is not so much that, well, we do create it, but we, we can only control our own contribution to it. I think the thing that most influences it, you know, and, and safe has written a lot about this and his whole, you know, fiat sound money dichotomy, whatever you might think about that, it certainly seems to be reasonable to suggest that the thing that people deem most meaningful, that is going to go a long way into uh, inculcating in, in them something that contributes to the culture, right? Because if it's so meaningful, they're going to be looking to that thing for some kind of guidance, you know, whether it is a, a religious hierarchy in the notion of God or whether it is a socioeconomic intersubjective absolute, like a, like a money, They'll be looking at the attributes of those things and the very process of everyone else valuing it in a similar way is going to elevate those aspects that people perceive in them. And so we might say in Bitcoin, we perceive truth. We perceive that Bitcoin property, inalienable property rights, you can't be stolen from. The, the, you know, the protocol can't be violated. And these things end up bleeding out into, well, if you, if you take them into your own life, it's like, well honesty and respect and, and, uh, well, don't lie, cheat, don't lie, cheat and steal, you know, all, mm -hmm. all the, the normal ones. I mean, it's, you could very easily see the connection between attributes in this thing that everyone is so-called worshiping and their manifestation in people's behavior. And so in that way, you can see how this thing is actually probably the dominant force in generating the culture, which I think a lot of us would say, great, you know, wouldn't you want something that 
has as its kind of highest ideals, truth and freedom and honesty and property rights and else, you know, perhaps much else more, but wouldn't you want those things to be the fundamental constituents of what generates the culture? Because I think we all agree, like those are the things that are most generative back to our, how we started this of, uh, you know, in our critique of Canada, of a stable, prosperous, peaceful culture. And so I think it is, that's the primary force. And then it's all, we all must take it upon ourselves. And this also alludes back to what I was saying about talking to so many pleb Bitcoiners on this show to almost represent those ideals. You know, you see them there, you see the value of them, you see what the market is saying about their value. Why not see how much value they accrue to you if you engage them, if you embody them. And, uh, you know, the, again, we're, we're getting cosmic here because this is kind of, there's, there's a lot of overlap between doing that with something like Bitcoin and doing that with something like your perception or your notion of a religious character or figure or God or something like that. And this is also why I think coming back to this notion of humility, I don't want, you know, I don't want to stereotype or, you know, um, go to broad brushstrokes here, but I think there's probably a more of an inclination in the technical community, let's say, or technically minded people to say, this is just a tool. It has nothing to do with belief systems. So let's just treat it as such. And my response, you know, when I see those comments, I always think nothing is just a tool. Mm -hmm. As soon as you find a utility in the so-called tool, that's connecting to all of your values you know, up to the, whatever generates the most of them. What do you hold as the highest values? Maybe it's truth. Maybe it's freedom. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's whatever. The utility you, that generates the utility you see in something because it it's that you, that utility is saying to you, oh, this can help you move closer to the thing that is of greatest value to you. This thing is, can help you move closer to the thing that's greatest meaning to you. So you can't tell me that any tool has nothing to do with belief systems. Every tool has everything to do with belief systems. And the reason why I bring that up is not just to shit on like overly technically minded people, but it's to say, I think that's also part of the element that will, um, I hate to keep using the word, but will inculcate the requisite humility to approach something of incredible value properly and not allow arrogance and hubris and thinking you, you, you see the full picture to cause you to engage it properly, improperly, and possibly harm it or destroy it. That's right. Um, and what you say reminds me of that old uh, Marshall McLuhan quote, which is, "We shape our tools, and our tools shape us." You know, right. it's a it's a circular, bi-directional thing. And I mean, that's really true of of um, of all you know, almost everything in life. Um, and uh, I, I hadn't you know, before you said that I hadn't really made the connection between preserving the value, the stated values of Bitcoin in work, and then having that kind of feedback and reinforce, you know, the, the characteristics that we want to see in ourselves, you know, truth, honesty, um, integrity. Um, I think that's a beautiful idea and I, um, I hope we can live up to it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, one of the things that has perhaps been absent from this discussion that, again, I think is important if to the extent we consider making changes to Bitcoin, if you know you you think such things are potentially valid, um, 
how should one be considering the risks that are involved in that? And so there's obviously two questions here. One is the specific risks of any change or upgrade, like with vaults and making uh, pay certain payments like conditional or, or impairing them in some way. And like, what are the considerations for fungibility and all that kind of stuff? Um, but I think those people can kind of get go down on those if they want and look at white papers, look at discussion that's happening on them. I'm more interested in, and this is kind of uh, counterintuitive or whatever, but I'm more interested in the how we ascribe a level of risk to the unknown unknowns. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so when we're mm -hmm. considering making changes at all, aside from the specific implementation or the specific upgrade, how should we be conceptualizing? And because I think back, you know, what we were saying about the deference to the experts here and how that's, well, unavoidable, but also potentially detrimental. I think that this is one of the things that myself and many others probably need greater clarity on. It's, it's, we all want Bitcoin to succeed. The, 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 the tension is, well, you think it succeeds by doing X, Y, Z, and I think it succeeds by doing ABC. And to what degree is that tension simply a matter of us not considering the same things? And so I'm, I'm curious about how one if should be thinking about risks and contending with unknown risks to any upgrade. Yeah. Yeah. So I, th I think probably um, if I can clarify your question, I would guess is less, less about sort of the technical approach to, you know, uh, gauging uh, uh, the impact of a specific change, you know, in the way that like, for example, we do something called fuzz testing in software where we create some kind of component and then we use a random generator to just absolutely hammer the thing with random input and see how it behaves, right? And the idea is that this, this fuzzer has its own algorithm for, for determining how to feed in random inputs that will exercise the entirety of the, the functionality, right? So at a technical level, like certain things are easier or harder to fuzz. And so that's almost your technical basis for saying like, what's the open-ended risk of this thing? Can I comprehensively exhaust the potential actions that the code can actually perform here? What's interesting is you can like take that approach and kind of scale it up a layer to almost the social layer, the end use layer. It's like, if I introduce this functionality into Bitcoin, you know, can, how hard is it to get your arms around? Like what, the, the total set of possible uses of this thing is, you know, and certain changes are easier and certain changes are harder. You know, I think one interesting case study here. So, so to take like the one end of the spectrum, which I think vaults lives on is like check lock time verify. Like, you know, what are all the possible uses someone could come up with for check lock time verify? Well, it turns out that's pretty easy to reason about because it's kind of a narrow set of functionality on the, uh, and, and I think op vault lives there for the most part. On the other hand, it's it's entertaining to look at something like multi-sig, right? Why should Bitcoin have multi-sig? Because if we were sitting here assessing multi-sig, it's like, well, we could enter a situation where Coinbase will only give me my Bitcoin if it's if it's in a two of three multi-sig where the the, the 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 treasury department or a two of two multi-sig where the treasury department's one leg of that. You know, like that that could be a a horrible usage that's an attack on Bitcoin. 
Um, obviously, we have multisig because it's 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 amazingly useful, and it the use sort of outweighs that possibility. Um, along with you know the fact that a, an attack like that's like hard hard to do for a few reasons. But um, one interesting example that I is is in the news a lot lately now is um, this ordinal stuff. Um, you know, inscriptions and the way that yeah, the way that Taproot has kind of enabled or, you know, quote unquote, enabled that, that use. Um, Made it easier, perhaps, is, is the, the gist I'm getting. That's right. And I think, you know, Andrew Pulsford had a very insightful and brief post on the mailing list about this, which I encourage people to, to seek out. Because the, the point is, if people want to embed data on the blockchain, they're going to do it. They're going to figure out a way to do it. There are more and less efficient ways to do it. Um, you know, probably the the least costly way to do it is is this taproot thing. And when I say costly, I mean costly to validation. Um, to, you know, the, the sort of costly in terms of the externality to people who just want to validate their nodes, um, because you can actually cleave off conceptually. You can cleave off the the, di the data people are embedding there versus if you were to hide data in signatures or something like that, which are very expensive to validate and store. Um, on the other hand, I mean, you can make you can make the argument that yeah, like Tap uh, uh, Segwit introduced this witness discount, and it made it you know in some sense cheaper, quote unquote, to embed large data in in these uh, witnesses. Um, and then that you know that gets into a kind of a bigger conversation about like, is it is it good that you know there's an impetus for a fee market? Um, is it, um, is, is someone, what, what do you mean an impetus for a fee market? Right. So my, my belief right now is that like, I personally, I think, um, any demand for block space right now is very good wherever that demand comes from, because I worry about the miners, uh, basically. Um, I, I, I like seeing security spend come through in the form of fees versus the subsidy, because that's, that's what's going to kind of sustain the system for a long time. So I, I, I kind of like seeing that come in um, one way or another. Um, but maybe, maybe the more interesting question to me is, conceptually, is someone sticking some data on the blockchain really any different or more objectionable than someone making payments that you don't like or care about, you know, is that really so different from uh, commerce that you don't morally kind of agree with the premise of happening on Bitcoin? And my answer is, well, in either case, you know, they're kind of inevitable. And in one sense, if you make one cheap, you know, the other becomes cheap um, because, you know, as we're fond of pointing out, Bitcoin is just data. Bitcoin is just speech. It's just speech. Um, and, you know, facilitating one kind of speech kind of by nature facilitates the other kind of speech. So mm. I, to me, there, to me, the, the notion of spam is just like what doesn't pay the market clearing fee rate because I'm not in a position to morally adjudicate the flow of value on Bitcoin. Um, and if someone wants to spend their Bitcoin to use the chain a certain way, that's it's almost fungible to me. Mm -hmm. Do you think this particular issue 
represents any greater long-term risks or consequences? Because I think most people would agree with what you just said. I mean, <clears throat> pay your fee and, and have at it, right? Um, but do you think it represents any other threats? I don't, I mean, not that I can see right now. Um, only because I, I think, you know, I, I think the inscription design is like personally, I, I Casey's a, a, a really smart guy. I'm really glad he's in Bitcoin. Um, I like him personally. I think, you know, inscriptions specifically within the ordinals thing is just, it's just kind of dumb. It's going to flame out. Um, you know, maybe you have a, a super long tail niche marketplace in the same way that people sell Warhol paintings like maybe that kind of persists on Bitcoin but my belief is that this this design um, where you're actually putting data into the into the blockchain is like very it, it just prices itself out very 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 quickly um, mm -hmm. so I don't I don't know I mean um, I don't know that it represents to me like it you know again it's not one of these things that keeps me up at night um, do you, you kind of went through the trajectory of this, you know, SegWit enabled taproot enabled this, does, does this represent or not? And this is total genuine question. Cause I don't know the answer, but each success of change, 99% might be as intended. And then 1% is, oh, we didn't, we didn't really see that mm -hmm. being possible mm -hmm. or, or that change. And maybe for one upgrade, that's fine. It's inconsequential. But if you string two and three and four and five together and you, you're building a chain of unintended consequences, you know, I, I, I can already, I don't think there's an easy answer to this question or if, if at all, but it kind of goes back to my question of like, how is it possible to contend with or conceptualize or to whatever degree um, assess the risks of, unknown unknowns i mean again by by default it's unknowable but if you're going to be making changes to something so fundamental and so valuable it feels like there should at least be some kind of heuristic or some kind of um way of thinking about it yeah that's right um you know so in in uh, nuclear design um in uh, aerospace design they have very specialized techniques for for gauging redundancy right so you should never be in a position where one component within the system can fail um, and cause, you know, huge downstream failures that result in loss of life. Bitcoin, like you could make the claim that it has the opposite problem where it's like, if you introduce too many components that could be used together in some way, you know, maybe, okay, you, you, you blow up the system. Um, I think on the one hand, like maybe that's possible in some sense, but I think, I can say just kind of based on the engineering culture in Bitcoin, um, the first question that people usually go to is like, what's the pathological use of this new thing you're proposing? Like, what is the most crazy, harmful thing, you know, that could be done? Because really in the, in the Bitcoin culture, rightfully so, like pointing something like that, that, that out, like uh, wins you a lot of credibility and, and reputation and, and, and it should. Right, because that's the whole name of the game. Um, but I, I do think there is typically an emphasis on like what's the pathological case here? What's the what's the worst that can happen? And I mean, you know, again, like with the taproot example, it's like, okay, you know, either either you want 
the ability to do say large multi-sigs or you want the ability to to embed large witness data which which you know to be clear could eventually get us to a day where you know um transaction data and signatures are, are slammed together in such a way that we have incredible gains for fungibility privacy efficiency you know like um that 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 design choice within taproot of removing the 10,000 byte script limit like wasn't wasn't just kind of done uh, uh out of nowhere so it's 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 you know it's hard to do that like 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 we both understand it's really hard to do that projection you need to try and do that projection you need to err on the side of not enabling you know failure spillover um and you need to be thinking about the pathological cases this may not be the most uh, concise closer, but you know, we're at time, so I'll let you go now, but I just, what in your mind is the biggest risk or risks if, if kind of they're equal in your mind to Bitcoin. Um, and I guess also, cause I listened to your chat with Marty and, you know, you were at the end, maybe, uh, I wouldn't say bearish, but you know, there, there was obviously there's, there's things that, uh, concern you, let's say, uh, but what are you most hopeful about? Like what, what kind of, we kick this off by saying how much, how Bitcoin invigorates people, you know, in, in a number of different areas for a number of different reasons, what, what is most invigorating about it to you and how is that directing your behavior? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and in some ways it's, it's, um, the thing with being pessimistic and morose is like, you can give very particular things that you're worried about. Um, with this question, I mean, look, I, from almost as early as I can remember, I've, I've been sort of a frustrated libertarian. Um, and I've been really concerned with individual rights. And, you know, I mean, geez, arguing with uh, people in my college dorm room about libertarian ideas is I, I joke that like, Bitcoin is like the dividend that that ultimately paid because it was so annoying. <laughs> right. Um, and you didn't get any uh, satisfaction when you were having the debates. No, it's, 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 it's like alienating and very frustrating because you're yeah. like, how can you not see this? How, how, how can you not understand that like top down control is really, uh, is really not great. So, I mean, look, this, this notion that, that Bitcoin could be a substrate for this new, more, more free world that we're, that we're making. I mean, it's even, even when I have these concerns that are fun to, to talk about, you know, on podcasts, I mean, look, I'll, I keep getting out of bed for this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And the thought of returning to work on something less potentially valuable to me is like almost unthinkable. Um, you know, it would have to be something like, you know, uh, going to work on nuclear energy, which has, has like its own set of, you know, impossibilities, mostly regulatory to sort of overcome. It would, it would have to be something like of profound value to even begin to equate to this idea that you're potentially working on the substrate for human freedom, um, and prosperity. You know, I mean, I, 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 I shouldn't even say prosperity because that sounds so vague and, you know, aggrandizing, but I mean, I, I really, I really think that if Bitcoin carries out its design goals, I mean, the world is going to be 
unrecognizable in a very nice way. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, that keeps me going. And, you know, even when I get bearish on whatever it is, I mean, there's just, it's almost like, arguing about the spouse that you really love or, or, you, or you know, like uh, <laughs> right, griping about your spouse that you love. You're so yeah, you're married and, you know, you can go out to beers with your buddies and, and, and you know, whatever, but like you, you, you love them deeply. And I feel the same right. way. You ain't going nowhere. You just I ain't you know, got to air out some stuff every now and then. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. You know, it's, I, that's one of the topics I love to delve into with all this is <clears throat> because of, of how, how, influential we know this thing is on consciousness basically on, on our perspective on how it changes so many things when we think of that future that we deem to be you know where there's more opportunity where it's more prosperous what does pr prosperity even mean in that future i mean we we started this off with you saying like you know you're there's an element to you that you want to be more independent and sovereign and you know so i imagine that means you're prioritizing sovereign access to food energy what have you versus you know, the trite material things that you might pick up at Walmart or the, or the Lambos or whatever. And so clearly you're assigning your definition of prosperity and wealth is different than, than people that would, that would be scooping up the ladder, let's say. And so it's very interesting to me to speculate, like once, as this becomes, if it becomes more and more uh, adopted, prevalent, distributed, you know, the dominant value transfer layer of the world, and all these things that we, some of the things that we've touched on today, what does prosperity mean? I think, I think a lot of us in today's world with this, the way things are, we think starships and wormholes and colonies on Mars, that's progress, that's wealth. And that it may be, you know, I'm not, I love that shit too. It's super interesting. Uh, but maybe we will define wealth and progress and prosperity, or we'll weight other things more than we currently do. And maybe, maybe there'll be intangibles. Maybe they'll, they'll be, uh, yeah, you know, intangible. John, when I say, when I say unrecognizable, unfortunately, what I mean by that is, uh, like widespread av availability of like uh, a single family home and like stability of the family, you know, I mean, that's <laughs> like, that's the kind of stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm talking about because that I think crazy outlandish shit. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, like, like from a human perspective, it, it kind of doesn't get much better. I've, I've worked with, you know, I've worked with people who are like billionaires and they, they want fundamentally the same things that you and I want, which is mm -hmm. to have a family that they love to be surrounded by friends that they like to, you know, do work that uh, invigorates them and, and that they believe in. And, and fundamentally, if you have those things like life just kind of doesn't get, get much better. Um, yeah. So I think, I think that's all we want. I mean, what, what worries me and not to, prolong the discussion too much but look what worries me is that for you know massive technological adoption to happen i think there has to be sort of an order of magnitude uh improvement in, in the value prop of the technology and, and what i really worry is that you know for bitcoin that ain't user experience like it's not fun to use bitcoin sometimes i mean sometimes it's really fun to use bitcoin but if you're trying to get your mom to you know use bitcoin in a self-sovereign way that's really that's really tough and what I worry about is that what's going to catalyze, what's going to show to people Bitcoin's value is going to be a set of circumstances that is really very dark right, uh, right. and really not a fun time for us. And I think uh, humanity's got, got a, a bit of a debt to pay down sort of literally and figuratively. And I think we... Um, 
you know, if things go a certain way, like our life is a little bit going to be about shouldering that debt coming home to roost. And I, I, I don't want to be glib and I, I it's very easy to, um, to talk brave, you know, before things like <laughs> this happen, but I, I, th I think it could, you know, um, it may not be fun. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the sobering realization that a lot of people who've given sufficient thought to what this chessboard looks like, uh, they've had to have at least considered that possibility. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how the different ways you're thinking about the implications of Bitcoin can engender in you certain emotions, be it hope, enthusiasm, you know, stimulation, but it also engenders those. And, you know, it's a, you, again, this will be my last comment, I promise, but you, um, you know, you talked about, even though sometimes you're a bit morose, you, there's still nothing more meaningful in your life, life than this, and you're completely devoted to it. And I, I, I don't, um, well, I, I don't draw these connections to be uh, provocative in any way, but I, I think it's an, it can be instructive and it can help guide us in, in looking just at the language used in the religious domain and how we're treating this thing. And I know people calling Bitcoin a cult and religion is usually used in a pejorative manner, but I think if we can, you know, uh, remove a lot of the baggage around that uh, phenomenon, let's say the religious phenomenon of theology, like, I, I think there's a lot to it in terms of how you approach the thing that is most meaningful to you, you know, and another one, and I hate to be like, uh, as morose as it gets right now, but it's like this, there's this idea of, we mentioned earlier, can you subordinate yourself something to something rather, um, because you recognize that's the way to get the most out of it, but that is also simultaneously uh, a humbling thing. And are you capable of seeing the value in that and, you know, finding the balance and doing that properly? Another one, obvious religious notion is that of sacrifice. Now you could take that, the ultimate sacrifice, or you could step back a few steps and you sacrifice every day when you work on Bitcoin, you sacrifice time with your friends and your family and out in nature and playing video games and doing all the other things you'd want to do. Those are little micro sacrifices. And again, I think a lot of Bitcoiners have realized that we're in these uh, very, maybe unique is not the right word, but times that may test our faith in a, in a, in a weird way. It's like, well, how much are you willing to give to this thing? And, you know, I don't, I don't want to answer that question on the ultimate domain. Nobody does because right. first of all, how can you until you're in that circumstance? And we, none of us want to consider that, but even, you know, you're a Bitcoin developer, very conceivable that in the future, there's a not so great spotlight or eye of Sauron on you. That's, and people and the system or the forces that, that prevail would want to isolate you, pressure you, you know, do things that would make you give up on your, on your, on your work basically. And, you know, and so the question is, well, how much am I willing to sacrifice to continue that? How important is it to me? And, um, you know, I don't have any answers here, but just to, to, I think it's, uh, that framing is obvious to me. And so it, mm. it, it causes these, it, it places a, a, emphasis and a seriousness on just how meaningful all this is and, and, and what you're willing to do. And perhaps a little bit more, um, positively who you're willing to become to contend with those things. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. that's the, the, the really interesting and the really positive and productive aspect of the tension of the times that we're in is that people seem to be on the process, but also willing to continue on that process of rising to whatever occasion is necessary to see this through. And what could be more uplifting than that? Because it seems to me that that's how you get those good outcomes. It's when people are so doggedly principled or adherent to certain values, again, as we were discussing earlier in the case of Canada, that they're willing to go all the way to preserve them. And it's, it's like, it's almost seems like it's a, uh, how reality works is like, it requires that level of dedication and sacrifice to get them and to maintain them. And so, you know, maybe you're right. And, you know, obviously I hope you're wrong, just like everybody else does. It would be great if, if this happened the easy way. Totally. Um, but even if it doesn't, even if the, you know, the big cataclysm or pushback doesn't happen, I think all of us are going to continue to contend with at least the internal struggle and tension of transforming into someone who's more capable and more appreciative and more more able to engage what's happening here on the best possible terms. And you know, mm-hmm. we all grew up in the industrial education system and the fiat, all the fiat incentives that prevailed up until this point in history. And I think that's just that means it's going to be a necessity to continue, continually engage that process of transformation. And um, ultimately I think it'd be good, but change can sometimes be uncomfortable and and that's what we all have to contend with. Well said, my friend, I think anything I could follow that on with would, would just be a, uh, a more uh, clunky reframing of, uh, <laughs> of what you got across there. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a process and um, we all have to go through it daily. And, uh, and just totally you know, get ready for whatever comes. Absolutely. Uh, well, look, I've taken up enough of your time. Um, we'll have to do this again because there's a lot of additional stuff I'm, I'm sure we could touch on. But is there any, you know, final words? Did you want to direct people to learn more? I, I We didn't really talk about OpVault. So if people want to learn That's more about fine. that, you know, the destinations they can go to to learn more about it. Yeah, there, I mean, there, you know, that's been discussed elsewhere. So I, I think we weren't missing too much. Um, but if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm, I'm uh, at James OB and uh, all the vault stuff's posted there. Um, but uh, I want to thank you for having me on. I really, really enjoyed this. Love talking to you always. So yeah, I do hope we can do it again soon. Yeah. Likewise, brother. Take care. All right, man. I'll see you. See ya. Let's go. Let's go.